Very nice. Let's open the Word of God, please, to First Peter chapter chapter one, verse thirteen. First Peter one thirteen. And let me read this to you from the uh, New American Standard Bible. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written in Scripture, Leviticus 19, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If, and that's third class condition in the original, means if and it's true. In English we put a since there. Since you, Jan Palovic, Ron Miller, Maxine Blystone, Brad McCoy, address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in the fear of the Lord, Yara Yahweh. Very important term, we'll describe that later. During the time of your stay, and the Greek text says sojourn in the military, that'd be TDY, temporary duty. During the time of your stay on earth, if you're here for a hundred years, it's still a blip compared to eternity. Knowing just how precious your redemption price was made for you. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, silver and gold are the most imperishable things we can picture but these are perishable compared to the eternal work of Christ uh, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of a lamb, the sacrificial Passover lamb personified in our uh, Lord Jesus Christ, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown part of this eternal plan in the mind of God from the and before the foundation of the world, the universe we live in, but has appeared in these last times. Peter's writing in 63, just 30 years before this, Christ died for our sins for the sake of you, for the sake of us who believed. Who through him are believers in God in the fullest, most specific possible sense, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are not in Tanglewood Bible Fellowship or James Mitchell or Brad McCoy or Chuck Swindoll or the Southern Baptist Convention, but your faith and your hope, regardless of your color, country, or culture, is in God, like the true and living God. Um, thinking. Thinking, meaning, uh, to employ one's mind rationally and objectively in evaluating or dealing with any given situation. Thinking is very much underrated and almost disrespected in the culture we live in today, Dwayne. I'm talking about postmodern America, March 2017. And that's, that's bad. Uh, fortunately, engineers don't buy into that, otherwise none of your bridges would work, right? None of your uh, technical stuff would work. Uh, so it's bad the culture is denying their existence of truth and thinking. The only thing worse is for too many Christians... <laughs> In America today, thinking doesn't seem to get all that much respect either. Uh, and the result is, rather than appreciators, our emotions become our total initiators. And so emotion is constantly used, or feelings, constantly used, used to trump truth and thinking, and nobody seems to ever question that premise. But in contrast to that, basically our passage this morning in First Peter says, we ain't got time, ain't got no time. For fuzzy thinking. And I know that's a double negative, but boy, it communicates nicely. And so I use it for that reason. We just ain't got no time for fuzzy thinking during this temporary duty where we're privileged, as it were. Uh, you know, if you played for Ken Wander as a basketball player, you better show up for practice, give 110%, play defense, know what all the plays are, and be raring to go when the, uh, the gun sounds or when the, when the ball is thrown up. And uh, to imagine that God wants Ken Wands or Brad McCoy to get between the lines and score some points for his team 
is still a mind-blowing thing for us, and it should be, and we've got a very short time to score some points. Uh, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word and that the teacher will not be all that significant, but the teaching will be. Uh, and as we do that, let's pray for those who protect and serve us, um, including our firefighters, our peace officers, and our active military. Okay, And uh, Clay, if you would, lead us in, in prayer, okay, in that direction. Thank you. Um, today, uh, to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, uh, I've got a very special top five list, top five reasons I may discontinue comedy top five list. Uh, number five, if you were here last Sunday, you know very well I don't need any more reasons. Yeah, we kind of had a problem um, I had what I thought was going to be a pretty good uh, way to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. A little known facts about the Apollo 11 moon mission. And uh, afterward, you had to go to a movie title uh, to describe what happened there. Failure to launch would be a good way to describe the reaction to that top five list. So that's why I'm thinking about discontinuing top five lists. Number four. President Trump uses funny top three lists, so why should Pastor McCoy use almost funny top five lists? Those are the things I've been thinking about this week. Uh, My love for humanity, that would be agape love, urges me to save the thousands of people who hurt their ribs every year laughing at how badly I read them. Number two, uh, the time I'd save not having to compose top five lists could be used to do truly important things like learning how to crochet, which is something I've been wanting to do, but I haven't had time. And the last uh, reason I may discontinue comedy top five list is a recent Duncan Banner poll shows that 92% of TPFers are secretly praying that I, will, that I will stop using top five lists and start using top 25 lists. So we may we may have to uh, go to 20, top 25 lists, just so you'll know. So. Okay, that's enough about that nonsense. Let's uh, think about the book of First Peter. We're going to a new portion of the book. We've been looking at a summary of the Christian faith under the umbrella of, hey, Dennis, you got to live your life under fire because we're, we're a persecuted, misunderstood minority group. And the original readers of this book were, were called uh, par epidemois. They were aliens. They were refugees. As Steve reminded me last week, the Net Bible, which is a really neat translation you can get for free at Bible.org, and I get no commission from Bible.org, uh, calls them not spiritual aliens like I do, but as those temporary, temporarily residing abroad, as those who's living in one place, earth, but their hearts are someplace else with God in heaven, uh, they had been forced to leave their homes and their jobs and their pensions and go hundreds of miles away to flee the persecution. And so they've lost everything physically. There's a proverb that's really good for Oklahomans to remember. It's uh, chapter 11, I think it's verse 17, and it says, When the whirlwind, when the tornado passes, the wicked are no more, but the righteous have an everlasting foundation. And you always, you know, after... uh a tornado hits, you know, you always see the newscaster with the microphone, sticks it in somebody's face after they've just had their house blow away, and they'll say, we've lost everything. And I know how that feels, and I might even say that, but really a Christian doesn't really mean that, because we've got something bigger than anything that's physical. So anyway, we're moving under the, uh, the theme of how you live your faith under fire uh, when you're facing intense difficulties in your life. It doesn't have to be overt persecution. It could be some personal crisis, physical crisis, financial crisis, marital crisis, etc. Uh, and we he, he summarized the Christian faith for us to kind of get us uh, grounded. And now he's going to summarize what it should look like in Michael Burtz's life or Brad McCoy's life, some, summarizing what Christian work should look like. Uh, I know all you guys want to be thinking very concretely today because many of you are going to go shoot each other with paintball uh, guns soon, later, right? So, isn't that like, so the Lord says, uh, thou shalt not murder, you've heard that, but if you hate somebody, so if you're pretending, it's it's okay to pretend like you're going to kill somebody, as long as you don't really, really think it's going to happen. Now, I, I have no theological problem with that. 
only reason I don't go is because I'm old and I'm stiff. Uh, although I'm thinking about, now that I'm 64, maybe we should have a, uh, a 64 and over TBF athletic, uh, contest because I think I could compete with most of the people. How old are you, Ken? You like 59 or something? 83? Well, forget it. I'm not, I don't want any silver medals. I've got enough silver medals in my life. But, um, yeah, so we're moving to a new portion here. We're going to survey what, uh, Scott Postal Waits Christian life should look like. I mean, belief and behavior is always connected in scripture. We tend to want to separate them artificially. And so you have those two major sections of the book, Faith Under Fire 101 and 102. And in the middle, you have the purpose statement. He, he tells you why he's writing right in kind of in the middle of the book. It's in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And my paraphrase of that uh, would be as spiritual aliens, as short-timers on earth, uh, as those temporarily residing abroad, as it were, Christians, put your name in the blank if you're a believer, Lendl Smith, should not be controlled by our emotions and our feelings, but we should constantly live our faith centered on the facts of spiritual reality on our Lord Jesus Christ so that unbelievers who tend to slander us because we are believers, we actually take this stuff seriously, we'll see the reality of Christ in our lives as mothers, as uh, neighbors, as citizens, as teammates, as co-workers, as fellow students, and ultimately glorify God by coming to Him in faith. So we're working through uh, the book, and we come to chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to be thinking about what our Christian life should look like. Notice in that purpose statement, uh, we, and put your name on the blank, uh, you know, Bo and Stephanie or Stan and Jenny should consistently live our faith centered on our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want to be your accessory he wants to be the axis of your reality, and he is whether you, you know, live like that or not. But uh, if you want to keep it real, you need to center on Christ and have a wholeness of life that only holiness allows you to have. Uh, talking about thinking has a bad name, holiness has a bad name. Uh, you guys are not, not old enough, but me and Ron, I think when we hear the word holy. We tend to think of the Pharisees, maybe, or the church lady, or maybe Dana. Carby pretending to be the church lady, this hypocritical, you know, uh, uh, gossipy, uh, impossible to please little old lady who's always pointing at everybody who's not exactly like her. That's not what holiness is like at all. Our passage this morning breaks down into two parts. First, we're going to see that holiness, I mean real biblical Christ-like holiness, which is really wholeness, is rooted in appreciation for what God has done, and anticipation for what God will do for us in Christ. And then that's amplified by the second part, knowing the one who saved us will evaluate the lives we live for him now on earth should motivate us to holiness, wholeness of our Christian conception of Christian life and how we think and live. Look at verse 17. I don't want verse 17, I want verse 13. Therefore, let's just stop right there. Uh, somebody a lot smarter than me said, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you need to look back and see what it's there for. Because therefore is saying, based on what we just said, and what's he been talking about? Well, one reason I give you these crazy diagrams is so you can see that. When you start verse 13, he's moving to a new subject matter based on what he's just said in verses 3 through 12, Right? So let's look back back at 3 through 12. Uh, Blessed be or praised be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope that transcends your physical issues, your marital issues, your financial issues, to a living hope that goes beyond your funeral through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an heavenly inheritance, and we're protected for that. And he goes on from there. So he's talking about the salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now the principle is, don't just read a verse. You know, so many people just rip verses out of context like it's a fortune cookie. They use the Bible like a fortune cookie. And to the extent that's just ignorance and sloppiness, you know, you gotta kinda pat them on the head and try to make them, 
look a little bit wider and read sentences and paragraphs. Um, to the extent they're, they're doing it because they want to misread the meaning. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Judge not lest ye be judged. That's the, that's the secular western thinker's favorite Bible verse because anytime you make any moral, uh, statements whatsoever, anytime you make any specific theological statements, like, remember Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. What, what does the average skeptic throw at you? Judge not lest ye be judged. How dare you draw any lines? Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. What does that mean? Well, I hate to do a, a, a cliffhanger for you, but you're going to find out. This Wednesday night, here, right after the dinner, you have to pay 3 or $4 for the dinner, but my presentation will be totally free, indirectly, and a lot of you are paying really a lot of money for these presentations. I thank you for that. But indirectly, I don't get all of it, but I get some of it. So, uh, But we're going to tell you what that means. It doesn't mean what it sounds like. But you know, it's funny because a lot of people put blinders on and they rip verses out of context, and these are the same people who say, you can't believe your Bible because it can mean anything. You know what? You can't really believe the Constitution nowadays because some judges think it can mean anything. But that's not the problem with the Constitution. It's the problem with the reader, right? I mean, the Bible means what it means by what it says, the way it says it. And in context, you can typically figure out the main things, and they're the plain things that get repeated a lot. So it's really important you look past just little chunks of verses or that you just rip through these verses. And so therefore, forces you to link what he's going to say about your behavior to your belief. The other thing you got to watch out for, the average American skeptic thinks Christianity is saying good Christians go to heaven and everybody else goes to hell. And the Bible doesn't say good people go to heaven and everybody else goes to hell. It says God doesn't grade on a curve. Nobody's good compared to God. But even though you don't deserve to go to heaven and nobody else does either, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ paid our sin debt for us on the cross and he paid it in full that everyone who throws themselves on his mercy and saving faith receives eternal life. That's what we're saying. But the average skeptic thinks we just think we're better than they are. You know, we're, we're better than Joe Sixpack, Sixpack who's uh, getting ready to watch basketball games all afternoon with his six-pack next to him. And I'm not any better than that guy. And neither are you, you know. All we is a sinner saved by the grace of God. And it's interesting, you know, in that same way you can kind of uh, rip verses out of context and put your blinders on and only see what you want to read into the Bible. Uh, that's the problem with dealing with suffering. He's t- dealing with heal. Here, you know, every time we have a crisis, we tend to put blinders on you. Zane knows a lot more about horses than I do, so I hesitate to talk much about horses. But um, one thing I know about horses is don't follow behind them too closely. That's all I know, you know. You can read, figure that one out, but later. But, uh, you know, you, I think you put blinders on horses, especially when they're working, so all they can see is that plow or whatever they're doing, right? And they're unaware of everything out here. And that's, we put blinders on ourselves when we focus on whatever, we, we focus on one of two things. We've had something really nice happen to us, and we focus on that because it makes us happy. Pleasant happenings make one happy. Joy is not just that. It's bigger than that, but ha- and it's great. If you have something happy to you, you see the rest of the day you're in a good mood because something good happened to you. You've got the blinders on. That's all you see. Or something bad's happened to you, or you're dealing with some horrible crisis, and that's all you see because we put these blinders on. And basically Peter's saying, yeah, don't deny the problem. The now is real. It's important. But it's you know it's only temporary. It's not ultimate. So take your blinders off and put whatever happy thing happened to you in a bigger context, spiritual context, and saying put it in proper perspective. And especially when you're dealing with trouble, suffering, like these people that are reading this, they're saying, hey, does God really love me? Why did I get kicked out of uh, Antioch and I'm living 300 miles away with people who don't speak my language and hate my guts, you know? Well, it's God's purpose for you, and you're going to have to believe that. And the now is important, but it's just a little part of all God's planning for us. So, boy, we got a lot of stuff out of that one word, didn't we? Thank you for saying amen. I appreciate that. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Um, it's funny because the Greek text, if you want to, you want the literal Greek text here? The Greek text says, bind up the loins of your mind. Does that help? That's an idiom, uh, like 
raining cats and dogs is an idiom. You know, it doesn't mean what it literally says. It means something different. Uh, it, back then, everybody either would wear a robe and or kind of a long uh, piece of clothing that was one piece that went to down to the ankles. And if you were going to work and need to do something like run or or do some farm work or or do some fishing, and they weren't fishing for fun, they were fishing for subsistence, you would pull up the bottom of your tunic and then with your robe and tuck it into your belt. That was called uh, uh, that was called uh, uh, binding up your loins, putting all that extra stuff you don't need that would get in your way, the the obstacles, and tucking it into your waistband kind of thing. Uh, today, uh, we would say uh, uh, get a grip, uh, roll up your sleeves and put your mind in gear kind of thing, uh, pull yourself together. Or if I can quote uh, Steve Bowers, who shouted this at me at a softball game once, get your head in the game. You know, he's, he's just saying, you know, therefore, in view of all that's been done to save you and allow you to be on God's team as one of his draft picks to score points for the team, don't don't live in panic palace all day long every day. Prepare your minds for action. Today we say roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, uh, keep sober. Well, he didn't want him to get drunk or high. Well, yeah, he didn't want him to get drunk or high. That's a sin for sure. But I think he's using that in a more generic sense. This means to be alert. When you're drunk or you're high, you're not alert, right? You're fuzzy and you're thinking. Be spiritually alert. Look at the physical in light of the spiritual. Look at the visible in light of the invisible. Look at the now in terms of not yet. Look at time and in things in time in terms of eternity. And remember, you might say, well, that was easy for these people because they had seen Jesus' ministry. They'd seen the resurrected Jesus. No, they hadn't. They had not seen him at all. Peter had. Uh, go back to verse 8, chapter 1. Remember he said, therefore, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him now physically, and some you may be wondering where he is because where was he when the bad guys forced us to leave home and take all our stuff, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter had seen him, and these readers had not, but they'd heard what Peter saw, and we're reading what Peter saw. So they were second-generation Christians, and we're 5,020. 200th uh, generation Christians, but our faith is in the apostolic word inspired in God's New Testament, uh, affirming the Old Testament prophecies. So he says, therefore, in light of all God's done for you in your past when he saved you, and in light of all he's going to do for you in the future because you are one of his, uh, put your mind in gear, roll up your sleeves, prepare your minds for action, be spiritually alert all the time, and fix your hope what you're looking forward to uh, completely on the revelation uh, of Jesus Christ, the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, somebody once said that to be uh, a stable person, you need something to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. You ever heard that? I think it's a nice way to summarize uh, you know, the basic things that we all kind of need. Uh, there's this famous... Uh, Circles of needs, this psychologist came up with that uh, we teach at University 1113 at Cameron, like five or six different things. But uh, really, I think you can summarize that in a psychological, spiritual dimension, something to love, something to do, something to look forward to, right? And when you think about it, I think most human beings would say, yeah, I need that. When you think about it, Jesus Christ touches all those bases like no other. It's like... You know, he kind of knows, uh, you always have something to love, your Savior. You always have something to do, commune with, uh, as the Westminster Catechism, know God and enjoy him forever, and something to look forward to. I mean, we really have something to look forward to. That's our Christian hope he's talking about, right? Uh, things bigger. We've been built and designed for something much better and bigger than the now, you know? So fix your hope. Project your faith forward to anticipate and look forward to something that's big in the future, being in the presence of Jesus. And as we saw back in chapter 1, uh, every believer has an inherit, uh, heavenly inheritance that includes our residence he's preparing for us, plus a lot of other wonderful truths and principles and uh, blessings. 
And we also have something to look forward to. Jesus is going to look for look at our entire Christian life and every rewardable thing, every true spiritual bit or spiritual fruits, even the low-hanging stuff, he's going to commend and reward. He won't forget a single thing. He says, if you gave somebody a glass of water in my name, which is no big deal, you're not going to lose your reward for that. You won't remember it, but I will. I'm going to commend you for that. So we have a lot to look forward to. Remember, hope in the Bible isn't I hope something might happen, but it might not, so I'll keep my fingers crossed. It's looking forward to something that's flat going to happen. Uh, let's go to Zephaniah. This will be the challenge of the morning. If you need to use the uh, table of contents, feel free. But uh, you have to get past the major prophets. You have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Yes, yeah, so let's find Zephaniah. We've cited this a couple of times. But man, this is just too good not to uh, kind of immerse ourselves in Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Okay. Yeah, Zephaniah, we'll wait for you. Uh, if you got the Ryrie Study Bible, it's 1453, Marie. Marie Shelton. Yeah, sometimes people ask me, what translation do you use or what Bible you'd like to use? And I always feel like the estate of Dr. Ryrie, he went to heaven last year, should send me a check, you know, every now and then for commission. But I personally like the Ryrie Study Bible, New American Standard Bible, but there's a lot of different versions. And uh, James will tell you, we kind of wear out a Bible every couple of years just because we actually use it a lot, which I was a occupational hazard I was not actually anticipating. I thought these things were uh, more permanent than that. But nothing physical is permanent. It's all going to go away. Sorry. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, Marie said, what translation of the Bible, what Bible version of the Bible do you use? Marie Shelton, I said, well, I use the New American Standard, King, uh, Dr. Ryrie, uh, the Ryrie Study Bible version. She said, okay, I want to get the exact one you've got. I said, is this hero worship? I don't like this. No, she said, I said, why do you want to get the exact one I've got? She said, so that you can tell me what the numbers are where when you turn the pages. So, Anyway, Marie, if you're listening up there, you don't probably don't need it anymore, but page 1453. But let's look at this. Zephaniah is an Old Testament prophet, and at the end of the book he's talking about when God's done with his purposes for history, here's what things are going to look like. This is what we ought to be looking forward to. He's talking to regenerate Israel here, but Zephaniah 3, look at verse 8. Notice, this is so sweet. God says to the prophet, therefore wait. Wait for me. It's coming. And I know you want it now. And you're probably not going to get it today. But it is coming. You can count on it. You can rest in it. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, Yahweh, the God of salvation. Talking about wait, I may wait for the 1028 to roll by. (laughs) And um, I think... uh, Thursday was my birthday, and so we got out of town and saw the kids and did some stuff uh, as a couple. But uh, Debbie started feeling bad on Thursday, and she's actually has been bouncing up and down. I thought she was better yesterday, and she she's not good now. She, she's diabetic, and her blood sugar has been uh, kind of unusually high, and I think we probably just need to increase some medication and stuff like that. Hopefully we'll get some stuff, some word on that this week. But anyway, that's why she's not here. She also said, don't tell people about it. And I said, look, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna notice you're not here. And I met a crack that we were separated last week. That's probably why the top seven list didn't work. Top five list didn't work. I met a crack we were separated because she was taking care of the kids in, uh, in, uh, Edmond. But anyway. And then she brought two of them home with her. So that was weird. But anyway. So the Lord says, wait for me. Wait for me. I got something really, really good. And it may, you know, there are some scars we accrue in this world that don't, that won't be healed this side of heaven. Uh, but look at verse 9. For then, when I get things where I want them, then I will give to the people's purified lips. No more cursing profanity. Uh, I, I was watching some quiz show recently, and they referred to one of the movies a couple years ago had the, probably for a lot of us, the worst cuss word was uttered like 575 times. Somebody actually had to count that. That's a job I don't want. Uh, look at verse 11. In that day... Yahweh, the God of salvation, says to believers, in that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you've rebelled against me. Is that refreshing? 
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God himself, in an oracle statement where he's being quoted directly, says, in that day, in the end times, when I get things the way they're going to end up, because I'm the all-good, all-powerful God, and I'm going to make sure it happens for you, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you've rebelled against me. Like the worst thing you've ever done that you hope nobody knows but God He's not going to hang it over your head as a believer. He's just not going to do it. As far as the east is from the west, that means that's not going to come up as far as your connection with him uh, as a son or daughter. Uh, go back to four, or drop down to 14. I'm just cherry picking. But here's what I've been emphasizing. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph. Talking about Old Testament believers, but let's put ourselves here, piggyback with them. The Lord has taken his judgments away from you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He cleared away your enemies, including cancer, uh, uh, failing marriage, uh, rebellious children, horrible parents that are on drugs and are irresponsible, so grandma has to take care of you, or whatever it is. The Lord's taken his judgments, uh, 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 taken away his judgments against you, because the Lamb's paid for them. The King of Israel, the Lord's in your midst, You'll fear disaster no more. Whatever disaster you're dealing with now, just put the blank, put it, fill in the blank there, just put it right there. In that day, it'll be said to Jerusalem, don't be afraid. Don't let your hands grow limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, so you're fine. He's a victorious warrior. Second advent is him coming back and invading planet Earth and putting down the bad guys out of business. He, and this is the one I still can't believe, but it's in the Bible, it's in the Hebrew. He, the Lord your God, as a victorious warrior, we're talking about the glorified Jesus Christ will exalt over you with joy. Is it possible that Jesus is going to exalt over me? Me? I got nothing. That's what it says in the Bible. He'll be quiet in his love. That's a figure like he, it's, it's not literally true, but like he, he, he loves you so much, he won't be able to express how much. He's going to exalt over you. He'll rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Is that awesome, James? That's that's our hope. It doesn't mean we hope it might happen, Dale. It's going to happen. You got it, baby. You got it. So cheer up. You know, it's going to get worse before it gets a whole lot better. Go back to First Peter. This is incredible stuff. Unbelievable. Look at verse 18. Not 18. Why well, I, I just can't wait to get the four. Verse 14. Now, as obedient children, and uh, the Greek text says, as children of obedience, as children who are acting obediently. Sometimes your children do, sometimes they don't. We're supposed to. As obedient children, don't be confirmed to the former epithumia, which is just strong desires to do something, good or bad, but here we're talking about negative things, sinful things, that were yours in your ignorance before you came to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Comprehensive wholeness is what holiness really is. Uh, because it's written in Scripture, you shall be holy for I am holy. Let's think about that. We're thinking about as obedient children, don't pour yourself into the mold of the world. Remember, does that sound familiar? What does Romans 12 say? Anybody remember? Yeah, don't be... Conform to the world. Don't let the world pour you into its mold, but be transformed. How? Where are you going to? Where are you going to go to renew your mind? Where are you going to get some divine viewpoint? Uh, you think the evening news has it for you? Uh, Warren Wiersbe, who's a famous uh, Bible teaching pastor guy, says uh, you got to renew your mind in the Word of God. You got to think. It's a bad thinks. A, Four-letter word now, even in universities, at least the one I teach at. Uh, the Word of God reveals God's mind, so we should learn it. God's heart, so we should love it. God's will, so we should live it. Our whole being should be controlled by the Word of God to the glory of God. That's my kind of preaching right there. But look at this holy thing. Let's let's uh, let's let's take the. Uh, Stereotype off of holiness. We're not talking about the church lady or self-righteous, condescending, finger-pointing, and I'm good and you're bad because you're not exactly like me. And I look like I just got off a stagecoach, so I'm more spiritual than you are. That's not necessarily the way it works. Uh, kadosh, kadosh, uh, hagias in the, the original languages, both mean 
to be distinct or separate, or you can even translate it special. So there's at least two ways that we can say God is holy. God is holy as at the level of being, ontologically. God is holy in the sense that he is the distinct, separate, only, unique, triune, transcendent being. Everybody has to have an unmoved mover in their thinking, in their assumptions about reality, or otherwise you've got everything popping into existence out of nothing, by nothing. We believe in a transcendent, outside of time and space, uh, triune, uh, perfected being who's called God, and that's in fact what happened. But when we say God's holy, we mean he's totally distinct from and therefore superior to every other created thing, everything else, because everything else has been created, right? So that's one way. That's not the way they usually teach it from the pulpit because they don't think you are going to think enough for five minutes to get think about that. But I just gave it to you. No expense, no extra charge there. But typically we think about holiness in a moral sense, and that's really kind of a combination of God's righteousness and his justice. And sure, you're right. God is holy morally because he's totally separate and distinct from any moral imperfections. Now, uh, so uh, holiness means to be distinct and separate. And he says here, uh, as obedient children, don't just go by your emotions and your lust pattern and your feelings, but discipline yourself to be centered on the one who saved you so you can be holy like he is, not perfectly uh, in our experience, but really to me, holiness looks like that. That's not holiness, okay? That's giving Jesus a part of your pie and God being your co-pilot. If God's your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat. You need to move over. That's holiness, you know, holiness is comprehensive uh, separation from believing that you're autonomous, right? So true holiness is not the church lady saying, look at how good I am and I'm the judge of everybody else. Because Steve uh, Skinner is not the judge of everybody else. In fact, we're told that God judges everybody. He judges believers for levels of commendation. He's going to judge unbelievers for levels of condemnation. He's going to judge everybody. But that's not our job, right? We do have to make value judgments, but we're not to take on the robes of God's justice bar. So true holiness is not somebody who says, hey, world, look at me. I'm a great person. I'm a great Christian. I'm better than you are. But it's saying, hey, world, look at how great Christ is. That's what holiness is. And again, it looks like that. And you can work in a scrapyard, or you can work at Caliburton, or you can, uh, you don't have to be in ministry or a missionary to do this. You, that is a Christian limp, that's a Christian walk. You don't have to be in ministry to live that kind of life. And trust me, sometimes James and I are there, you know. We're not ontologically perfect, but we're called to comprehensive separation, consecration, to serve and love the one who saved us. And that's true even on prom night, okay. Uh, Real holiness, real wholeness, this is good for you psychologically as well as spiritually, is rooted in appreciation of what God has done, anticipation of God, what God will do, Zephaniah 3 as it were. Now, verses 17 through 21, knowing the one who saved us will evaluate how we live for him in this world should motivate us to holiness, wholeness, comprehensive consecration in how we think and how we live. Okay? Look at verse 17. Finally got there. Now I know that says if, and that's a good translation, but it's a third class condition. There's three, actually four different ways you can have an if uh, statement in the original language, and this is the one that means if and it's true. So if you want to translate it literally, if and it is true, you can refer to God as your father, because he is, because you're a believer, uh, and he's the one who impartially judges his according to each man's work. But I would rather just say since. Since you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, during your sojourn, your short-term TDY, temporary duty time on earth. Um, we know that he's not questioning their salvation because he says back in chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be God because he has caused us to be born again. That's a fact. That's an indicative. So we go back to verse 17. Since that's true, you ought to live consistently with that. And one thing should motivate you is the fact that he's going to evaluate all the stuff you do. And we make a big deal around here, and I think it's important, 
It's not just doing good things. It's doing good things for good reasons. It's doing the right things for the right reasons. You can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And you know, religious people, the Pharisees who hated Jesus, did all kinds of good stuff for bad reasons. And we're not talking about just that. It's not just fornicating and, and murdering and slandering and lying and cheating and stealing. It's coming to church for the right reasons. It's, it's praying for the right reasons. It's doing the right things for the right reasons. So realizing we're going to have an evaluation. You know, one reason, the first couple of semesters I taught at Cameron, I mean, it's an 8 o'clock class. Uh, it's early in the morning for college students. I thought, and I want them to like me. And so I'm not going to give them quizzes at 8 o'clock. I'm just going to, and, and I'm going to be such a good teacher. They're all going to just show up on time, and we're just going to have a wonderful mountaintop educational experience every single time we meet. And it's going to be wonderful, and there will be lollipops and angels flying around, and it's going to be beautiful, and we're going to have the good ship lollipop, uh, you know, uh, heaven on earth, even before the second coming. And it didn't work out that way. And people would start rolling in it five minutes late. It's almost as bad as church. Ten minutes late, twenty minutes late. Uh, and so, and also we have reading assignments. And so, you know, I noticed nobody did the reading assignments. And they showed up late all the time. So I did something I can't really do here. I started giving 8 a.m. quizzes. And I tell them, on the, and it's 20% of your grade, which is a huge chunk, you know. First day, every day, I say, if you can't be here on time, I'd rather you come late than not at all. If you come late, you don't have to explain why. But at 8 o'clock straight up, I'm going to pass out the quiz on the reading. And guess what? Everybody started doing the reading. Everybody started showing up on time. It's amazing. A little accountability uh, is all you need sometimes. you know. And in- invariably, you get one or two people that uh, roll in late. But I tell them, look, after I pass out that quiz at 8, I shut the door. I say, And I always say this. you got to use all the biblical in- injections you can it's just like God shutting Noah's ark. You know, you can't come in. No, you can come in. You can come in, but you can't take the quiz. Once the door is shut, that means come in quietly. Everybody else who was here on time is taking their quiz. Sit down, realize you've just made a zero on the quiz, but it's okay. You get to drop four over 16 weeks, right? It's not too bad. Uh, so if you have to be late a time or two, but don't make it a, pa- a habit. Uh, I've had a lot of people, including people like Steve Skinner, find out I teach part-time at Cameron. They'll say, tell them to show up on time, to do their assignments, and do their assignments well. And I said, I'm trying, but I can see why that's an issue, because they don't necessarily want to do that until you have some accountability. So it's important to realize we do have an accountability. Uh, a journal article uh, somebody wrote once was titled, Secure But Scrutinized. We are secure in our basic connection with God through faith in Christ, but we are going to have our lives scrutinized for the purpose of giving or refraining from commendation and special rewards, like medals or a letter jacket some people will get that other believers will not get. And I love my letter jacket, still do. I want to get a letter jacket, you know, in heaven with a big H on it, you know. Uh, and I may not get one. I don't know. It's not up to me. But that should motivate us. Now, it, he says, realizing there's accountability here, there's going to be a quiz at the end, as it were, or at the beginning of the, the, the speech class, uh, conduct yourselves in fear. Now, again, a lot of us, you know, we tend to think of God the way we think of our fathers, and our fathers were really stern and rough and tough and strict disciplinarians. We tend to assume God's like that. But we're supposed to renew our minds, right? Our conception of God's supposed to come from the Word. And He is a sovereign, and He does have standards. But... Uh, Zephaniah says he's going to rejoice over us, David. He's going to be glad you're there, man. He's not going to be pounding you. He's going to see your sins washed by the blood of Christ. So, But he's going to look at your Christian life and see how well you did. He's going to look for stuff to like. But you see that word fear. And so a lot of people inject some abject fright. And you know, fear there goes back to the Old Testament expression of the fear of the Lord and uh you go from right to left, Yara, which is fear or respect, Yahweh, which is all caps, the God of salvation. So the fear of the Lord is a reverential awe as the basis of an active awareness of, active dependence upon, and active submission to the God who has saved us. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's not an abject fright. It's not something that immobilizes us. Is something that invigorates us because our love and respect for the one who saved us is we want to serve him and score some points for his team. And what a blessing it is that we have that opportunity. Knowing, 
look at verse 18, that you were not redeemed with perishable things. And he's saying that tongue-in-cheek because silver and gold is the least perishable stuff you can think of and the most valuable stuff you can think of from a physical point of view. But he's taking his blinders off and he's thinking about bigger than just physical, visible reality. That's why he told us to do that in our thinking. From your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb. Where do you use a lamb primarily in the Old Testament system? You could use it for trespass offerings and sin offerings. Uh, I know that. But typically, Exodus 12 says the mo- probably the second most important holiday on the religious calendar, first was Day of Atonement, was Passover. And even today, like the most liberal atheistic ethnic Jew will typically celebrate Passover. That may be the only thing they do. I mean, Alan Dershowitz, you know, will celebrate Passover more as as a traditional thing than anything else. He doesn't believe in God necessarily at all. But he's talking about the Passover lamb. What do you know about the Passover? What do we call it, the Passover? What, What are we passing over here? Yeah, you remember, I mean, you got Israel in Egyptian bondage, and as as Moses and God are convincing the Pharaoh to let them, let them out, he sends a series of plagues on the Egyptians to put the pressure on them. And the final uh, plague was the death of the firstborn. But the nation and the Egyptians even were warned, you know, if you'll find a lamb and sacrifice a lamb that has no visible blemishes, wonder who that represents. Who's the lamb that has no blemishes? Jesus, right? Take that blood and put it on the doorposts and across the top of your door and get in the house tonight. So if you're in the house protected by the blood of the Lamb, the death angel that's going to take out the firstborn son of every family and the firstborn uh, male animal of all your flocks, going to take them out, going to kill them. But that death angel will pass over your house, right? And there'll be deliverance from the death of the of the firstborn. So that's the idea there. And I'm convinced the original readers of First Peter were primarily Gentiles, but they knew enough about Jewish background to know about the Passover lamb, and they know they're talking about Jesus here. So because of all that God has done to make us savable and to make us right in his eyes, and because he's going to evaluate what we do when we're between the lines now, trying to score some points for him, we ought to take this as a big priority. This ought to be something that causes us to totally consecrate ourselves to the glory of the one who saved us. And this plan of God wasn't just something that God kind of threw together after the fall. Like, oh my goodness, Adam and Eve, you know, have sinned. What are we going to do now? You know, there was no problem there. This plan goes back to the eternal mind of God. Uh, verse 20, for he, the Lamb of God, the person of Christ in his salvific function, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This goes back to the eternal mind of God. There was never a time he didn't know this. Uh, but has appeared in these last times for your sakes. So, um, and the blood of Christ, uh, the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ validated by his resurrection is the basis of salvation and is the essence of the gospel, right? Uh, now watch this. We have this controversial statement at the end. Uh, who through him, that is through your faith in Jesus as your Savior, you're not just believers in Jesus, you're believers in God in his totality, his totality. Uh, you know, specifically God the Father, he raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So your faith and hope are in something bigger than the Jewish temple or the apostles per se or Tangled Bible Fellowship or Dallas Seminary or whatever it is. Your hope is in God. You know, the principle is, and this sounds very controversial nowadays, but this is uh, the teaching of the Savior uh, if you know Jesus, K-N-O-W, what does K-N-O-W mean? If you know something, if you know Jesus, in that sense, you know God. If you have no N-O Jesus, you got no God. Let's look at some verses on that. Um, and I guess for lack of time, let's just, uh, Blanche, do me a favor. Look up uh, John 5.18. Anybody else? Let's go to John 8 real quick. The Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at John 8, and we'll start with verse 13. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. But listen to what Blanche reads here. Um, Let me find my passage here, Blanche, first. John 8, let's look at verse 13. But Blanche, what does uh, uh, 518 say? Listen Listen to this one. 
Yeah, when Jesus claims to be the Son of God or refers to God as his Father, they realize the Jewish opponents, the, the religious leaders, realize he's making a unique claim about himself, that he's the Son of God, Psalm 2, the one who's co-equal with God. How, whatever, however that works. And they weren't quite sure, and none of us totally understand it either. But it goes back to the triunity of God. But in, in, in John 8, we're actually going to look at verse 18 uh, and following. But look at verse 13 to get us started. John 8, verse 13. Uh, so the Pharisees said to Jesus, this is after he's done the light of the world discourse, or in connection with that, I should say. Uh, the Pharisees, the the religious leaders who hated Jesus because they were like the church lady, they thought they were good enough, they could earn their way to salvation, and he said, you can't do that. They said to him, you are testifying about yourself. You're talking about how great you are, which is true for him to say. Your testimony is not true. Now let's go to verse 18. Jesus says, I am he who testifies about myself. True. I'm testifying about who I am, the unique Savior sent from God the Father. And the Father who sent me testifies about me too. So they were saying to him, where is your Father? You know, kind of piggyback on what uh, they said in chapter 5, Blanche's read. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. They're claiming to be the guardians of, of God, Yahweh, God the Father. But he's saying, you don't even know him relationally. If you knew me, you'd know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury, in the temple precincts, as he taught in the temple area, and yet no one seized him, even though they wanted to kill him right on the spot because his hour had not yet come. Then he said, verse 21, I'm going away and you'll seek me, and you're going to die in your sin, uh, because where I'm going you cannot come. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the same ones who said you're making yourself equal with God, that's not cool, were saying, Surely, he's not going to kill himself, you see? Because he says, where I'm going, I cannot, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. You are earthly. I'm from above. I'm from heaven. You are of this world. I'm not of, I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you're going to die in your sins. For unless you believe, he's even acting like you still have a chance here. Unless you believe I am he, I'm the Messiah, I'm the issue of eternal life, you're going to die in your sins. Boom. Go to one more. Go to 1 John. John's that big gospel early in the New Testament. 1 John's that little letter of five chapters toward the back of the New Testament. So let's go to 1 John chapter 3. K-N-O-W Jesus, K-N-O-W God, N-O Jesus, N-O God. That's what Jesus teaches that happens to be the truth. One plus one equals two. You may think it equals four, but you're wrong. And somebody should probably tell you before you start trying to design bridges or something. Uh, at some point, it'd be good. First uh, John two twenty three. This just is flat out what it is. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. You, you, you can't deny that Jesus is the Savior and have an eternal connection with God at the same time. Uh, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And this is why, you know, if, if uh, Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged, is the skeptic's favorite verse, probably the skeptic's least favorite verse is Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. They hate that. Uh, I remember, I mean, it, this is a long time ago. I mean, uh, this train's been traveling toward the, over the cliff culturally for a long time. But Donahue, remember Donahue? He had the first, like, real popular talk show. Uh, and I uh, remember any time he'd get a Christian who would say something like that, he just would go ballistic. Not because he was surprised, because he knew that's what we believed. He just wanted to have people realize, you know, feel his pain. You know, we're, we're not thinking here. We're working on emotions here, and we don't like that. Now, how does all this work? Well, I'm not going to say I totally understand it. I'm not sure anybody does. But I know that in the being of the one true God, there exist three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. The Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. He's a separate person, but he is fully God in his, in his character, in his essence. The Son, Jesus, who takes on humanity later, but for all eternity, was the second person of the Trinity, we call him. Not any less powerful or less important, but... Uh, He's God, but he's not the Father nor the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's a person, but he's not the Father nor the Son. 
that is an attempt to say, okay, the triune God, God the Father is the author of the plan, God the Son is the active agent, God the Holy Spirit is what? The activating agent in time. Jesus comes as the active agent, lives a perfect life, dies and pays for all of our sins, rises again from the dead. So he's the one you want to connect with if you want to have a blessed experience after you die, and it's coming. You're going to die. Um, And the cool thing about the gospel is it's summarized in John 3.16. God loved the world so much, full of sinners like us, that he sent his son to die for your sin debt, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so because Jesus died for and paid for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins, but we must trust him as many as receive him. To them he gave the right to become sons of God, to those who believe in his name. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's my fault. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. It can't be that easy. Well, that's the way Jesus did it in uh, the terrorist on the cross. How about the rich young ruler? If the guy had asked better questions, he would have got better answers. When the rich young ruler says, I've obeyed all the law since, what do I have to do? He thought Jesus would say, you are not the problem. You're perfect. You're exactly what I'm trying to get people to be, like a church lady. I want everybody else to be like you. He, Jesus throws a whole tub of water. Says, you know, unless you'll, let me, did you do this, this and that? If you break any of it, you're done. You know, the, the rules, the Ten Commandments are not a ladder. We can use climate God as a mirror that shows us we break them all the time. We desperately need a Savior. And he looks like that. He dies on the cross. He doesn't look very powerful dying on the cross, does he? Doesn't look omniscient, omnipotent at all. Isn't it amazing? The greatest uh, heroic, most powerful act looks like uh, just another Roman execution. But what makes it different is that. What's that? It's the empty tomb. It's a, res- it's a bodily resurrection, right? All right, our passage this morning is saying we ain't got no time for fuzzy thinking. We need clear thinking about reality that factors in and prioritizes spiritual reality, invisible but real spiritual, not just physical dynamics, divine viewpoint about spiritual and eternal realities, a faith in facts centered on Jesus Christ so that we can live a life centered on the one who saved us. And once you do that and stop just focusing on the one thing that makes you happy today and the one thing that makes you miserable today, so you put it in a bigger context, you can actually have a grateful heart for all that he's done and all he's going to do. And you can doubt your doubts and just assume he knows why whatever's happening now, even though it's inexplicable to you and me, it's just possible and certain he's got a reason for it. Uh, Those kind of graceful, grateful hearts lead to holiness, wholeness in Christian living where we get Jesus Christ right in the center of our pie chart. And it doesn't look like the church lady. It looks like somebody who's reflecting someone much greater than he or she is. So wholeness, holiness is rooted in an appreciation for what God has done for us in Christ an anticipation for what he will do for us in Jesus Christ, knowing that he's going to evaluate our lives now, which motivates us to be consistent and centered on Him, not just on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, but even on Monday mornings, even on out-of-town work trips, and even on prom night. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to be better thinkers so that we can be more whole, more holy in the way we think about and live out our lives. Motivate us uh to serve you because you've saved us and because you've done so much and are going to do infinitely so much more and help us to put uh, the current temptations or pressures or problems or even the good things that might want us to push Jesus out of the center of the pie chart. Uh, help us to uh, factor in these much bigger, more substantial realities so we can stay centered and whole locked in like a tractor beam on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we pray for anyone here this morning who's not, from the depth of their heart, trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Pray your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Open their eyes to see and fully trust in the risen Christ. For the rest of us, Father, let this uh, word 
be not just information, but transforming truth. We pray you be glorified in the process and a product of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.